So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the May 2016 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and actually a podcast first. Uh, today's article is actually not from Chess, but from JAMA back in February of this year, 2016. The editorial is from Chess. So my first guest today is Dr. Clifford Deutschman, Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Medicine and Vice Chair of Research from Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine and the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research in New Hyde Park, New York. He's here to discuss his article in JAMA from February 23, 2016, The Third International Consensus Definitions for Sepsis and Septic Shock, the Sepsis Three Consensus. Cliff, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Also joining us is Dr. Stephen Simpson, Professor of Medicine from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Kansas in Kansas City, Kansas. He's here to discuss his editorial from CHEST, New Sepsis Criteria, A Change We Should Not Make. Steve, thanks for joining us as well. Yeah, my pleasure. Glad to be here. So let's just start from the beginning. Um, Cliff, you know, what prompted uh, you know, the committee and, and to start to form Sepsis Three, Or you know, just to put it another way, you know, We'll obviously get into the details, but why did we need new definitions? What was the goal here? Well, it's it's a complicated question with a long answer, but we can, I think, cut to the chase. Okay. Uh, the original definitions were put out um, by the first consensus conference um, convened in 1991, published in 1993. They were updated slightly, that is, reviewed and changed almost not at all in 2001, publication a year or two later. And essentially, the definitions had remained unchanged since that first conference in 1991. In the interim, we've learned a great deal about sepsis, about its pathobiology, by which I mean the combination of pathophysiology and molecular biology and uh, microbiology and, uh, and immunology, etc., all the ologies. Um, and we've also discovered that... Uh, that the original definitions, which were incredibly useful at the time, um, were not felt to be uh, as, as beneficial as they could be. It was time to revisit them. Uh, this started as a, a joint project between the ESICM, European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Um, the project was actually initiated over five years ago. The task force was appointed and uh, met for the first time about two years ago in, uh, in uh, January of 2014. Um, we deliberated extensively on and off, uh, both in person and uh, online, um, over the course of a number of months, and generated the, uh, the papers. Now, the single most important thing we felt, um, besides the need to revisit what had previously be done, been done and to update it, was to try to place the identification or potential identification of the septic patient uh, on an evidence-based uh, basis. Um, essentially, the original approach, the SERS criteria, um, were formulated on the basis of expert opinion. They'd never been subjected to any kind of, uh, any kind of prospective, retrospective, or data-driven validation, and we... Um, took it upon ourselves as, the, as our most important task was to come up with uh, clinical criteria um, that reflected um, uh, data. So one of the first things we did as we were deliberating about what the definitions should be was to uh, 
co-opt to junior people with uh, data mining capabilities and ask them to look at a number of really large data sets and see if they couldn't, first of all, test existing uh, criteria, and second of all, see if they couldn't devise something that was better. So that was sort of the impetus for the entire thing. Um, the biggest driving force in all probability, I, I think it's safe to say, was that uh, we wanted to try and get uh, the identification of septic patients into uh, a data-driven, um, from a data-driven perspective. Was, was the goal then partly from the perspective of saying we, we think we can do a better job with sepsis if we were able to kind of refine our definition, or was this also, like all things when we're trying to conduct research, if we're stuck with a bad definition or a bad set of you know, rules, if you will, it, in, it influences our, our studies and our data you know, inadvertently, and if we kind of sharpen things up, maybe we'll get better research trials. Well, what was I, the kind I think, of driving force? I think the answer to your question is, is yes. Um, okay. It's not an either-or. The, the okay. original definitions uh, were put together because, frankly, what existed before 1991 was a total mess. Um, you couldn't compare two studies. You couldn't compare two papers because they simply weren't talking about the same thing. And what the 1991 and 2001 revisions accomplished was to put the entire notion of sepsis into a framework that everybody could use. Uh, it was a, a noble experiment. It worked reasonably well at first. Um, but again, as we've learned more about what's involved in the septic process, it's begun to outlive its usefulness. Uh, we've come to understand more about what's going on in septic patients, and that, make, that made these, these initial definitions a little bit obsolete. The other important point of this, too, is, is that um, we, because of the, the need, the desire for a data-driven analysis, uh, we, we've come to look at the whole definition of definition, if you will, a little differently. Uh, if you go to the dictionary, it says that a definition is something that will that that identifies the essence of something. It it is a definition tells you what something is, and I think it's fairly safe to say that none of us would venture to say that we know what the essence of sepsis is or what sepsis is. Um, so we can come up with any kind of definition we want to. Um, what we need is something that's clinically practical. The original definitions were very clinically practical, but they weren't definitions. They were subject to change. They were modified. They were uh, turned around by different people with, uh, with different agenda. Um, and the consistency had disappeared. So part of the driving force was to get a definition that cut as closely as we could to describing the pathobiology in a short phrase, um, and then come up with something that was more akin to what the SERS criteria and what previous work had done, which was to identify, using data, clinical criteria that would help identify patients who were most likely to be septic. And the most important thing to remember about that, too, is that there is no gold standard. We can't stick up an X-ray and say, aha, sepsis. We can't do a biopsy. Um, we can't scan anything. It's not like an MI. We don't have a gold standard test um, that's been improved over the years the way we have with, uh, with biomarkers for, for myocardial infarction. Um, we can't, you know, take cells and say, okay, these are malignant cells. Right. Sepsis is 
something that defies that sort of gold standard definition. So one of the things that became extremely important was to get the input of epidemiologists and the input of people who are used to managing this sort of data with sort of a vague endpoint, um, where what you use is proxies for the endpoint you're looking for. And the best we could come up with uh, were these proxies that we used. That's what drives the data analysis, because, again, there's no gold standard to check it against. Right. Okay, so before we jump into what, you know, what changed, you know, that, that was the background of why this went on. Um, and, and, and so, Steve, I want to get your, your thoughts as to what Cliff just said. But, again, we'll, we'll, just for another minute or two, we'll stay clear of, you know, what, what is being, you know, recommended in the sepsis three, and then obviously then um, that's where we can have, I think, a pretty active debate. So, um, Steve, what do you think about uh, what Cliff just said in regards to, you know, the 91, 93 slash 2001 and beyond and, and the workability and then the data-driven, et cetera? Just respond to the thought process for the, the new definitions. Sure, sure. And, and to do that, you have to understand that I come from a background of quality improvement where sometimes we literally do sacrifice exact precision for workable definitions that are making a change and a definite dent in the direction that we want to go. So I think the number one most important point that I want to make about this is that using the current definition, or what I still call the current definition, of sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock, uh, the amount of diagnosis of sepsis has been demonstrated to be going up in the world consistently, while throughout the world, the mortality rate from severe sepsis, using the same definition, or substantially the same, either the sepsis 1 or sepsis 2 definition, um, mortality rate's been coming down progressively. Um, I, as a quality improvement person, I see no reason to uh, alter or monkey with success from that, from that standpoint. And we have a lot of data, although, as Cliff says, the original definitions uh, really were based on expert opinion, uh, and they came substantially out of mind of Roger Bone, who I worked with uh, uh, when I was a fellow and taught me these definitions before they were even um, uh, before they were even published, actually. But, but subsequently, I mean, we have to remember that there have been scores of clinical trials using these definitions. Uh, there has been a worldwide surviving sepsis campaign with over 30,000 patients in the database using these definitions. Um, there, uh, uh, most recently, we had the PROMISE process and ARISE trials showing a substantially lower mortality than we had ever seen using the same definition. So it's clear in my mind that the standard definitions of sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock, are making a dent in how we approach severe sepsis, and we are actually reducing the mortality, which, which from my standpoint is exactly the most important thing that we could do with a set of clinical criteria. Um, what's happened, uh, what, I, what I said in the editorial or what I proposed in the editorial that might happen is exactly what is happening, is that people are now confused about, so what do we do? And in a lot of places, the quality improvement efforts uh, have been in place and have been progressing 
um, are in a stew over should we change a definition, should we not change a definition, which is, uh, in my estimation, not where we need to be. We need to keep uh, putting the pedal to the metal, if you will, and continue to improve this worldwide uh, uh, mortality rate from severe sepsis. Um, in, in my estimation, the fact that we are improving mortality using these definitions means that they, they have been prospectively validated in a number of different ways. And, uh, and while I do uh, understand what Cliff is saying about the uh, massive use of databases, or the use of massive databases, I should say, that, that they did to derive the new criteria, um, the new criteria are not prospectively validated in any way. They are a uh, retrospective look at what we think happened over oh, roughly a four-year course uh, in these databases, and, and we don't know uh, what's the meaning of these new definitions uh, in any way other than retrospective. Okay. So it, the summary there would be, one, it's not broke, don't fix it. And, and then the second component of it would be, fine, maybe we have a new definition, but how do we know that it's going to hold the test of time and maybe, you know, two, two years later there's going to be a sepsis four because prospectively we're not going to like what we see. That, that's the argument you're making. Nice, nice summary. That's how we would say it in Kansas if I weren't on the podcast, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, Cliff, then, since we've, you know, you outlined what the goal here was, and, and Steve outlined where his concerns were, why don't we cut to the chase? Because maybe, maybe many of our sure. listeners haven't read the JAMA guide or JAMA paper yet. Um, Get the sense know, because that a lot we, of because we only read chess. Because we only read chess, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you published it in the wrong journal. It's, you know, but um, but Cliff, why don't you why don't you summarize? Obviously, you're not, okay. you're, so please don't start me, reading the article. But <laughs> uh, let me start by avoiding the obvious, you know, bad joke of saying, you know, it's. Too bad that we're using those newfangled things called cars because the horse and buggy work just fine, and I don't know why we needed to change. Let's put that aside. We'll put that aside for the moment. Look, the first and most important thing, Steve, and, and this is before we actually get into the discussion of, of um, the, 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 the argument you're making, is let's not confuse definitions with clinical criteria. Correct. The definition is something that's designed to get at the essence of what the disorder is about. It's not clinically useful. It's not probably clinically relevant, at, at least not yet, but it's the best we can do. What the clinical criteria are designed to do is help us, help people in the trenches identify patients who might just have this syndrome that we're doing the best we can to describe on a biological basis, but we're nowhere close to describing so what we're talking about here, and, and again, with all due respect to Roger Bone, who I knew fairly well, and my, my old mentor, Frank Sarah, who was also involved in the first consensus uh, conference, um, the original definitions weren't definitions. They were clinical criteria to recognize the patients most likely to have this syndrome that we're so concerned about. That is, by the way, I do agree with that point. Yeah. Okay, so what we're talking about now is whether or not the clinical criteria need to be updated. I would say the following to Steve's argument. Um, first of all, every paper that you cited, um, one of the authors was a member of the task force. 
the lead author, the, the driving force behind the uh, surviving sepsis campaign is Mitchell Levy. He was on the task force. The lead author for um, two of the three, actually three of the three, well, two of the three um, mm-hmm. early goal-directed therapy <coughs> trials, Derek Angus and Ronaldo Malomo were also members of the task force. Mervyn Singer was the driving force behind the third trial. So, again, we had the input of the people running these clinical trials. The argument I would make here is this. We have absolutely seen an increase in the diagnosis of sepsis in applying that diagnosis to patients. There's no question about that. And we have absolutely seen an increase in the number of patients per year who die from this disorder. However, the increase in diagnosis has increased at a faster rate than the increase in overall deaths, and therefore the relative mortality has gone down. Mm-hmm. So that's a statistical argument. The point that I would make is this. I don't think it's the definitions that have anything to do with the improvement in mortality. We're showing a difference between a treatment and non-treatment. That's a function of the treatment. Um, the patients entered into those trials were defined exactly the same way. The patients entered into all the surviving sepsis stuff were all defined using, were all identified using exactly the same criteria. What improved the outcome was the intervention. So I think it's whimsical to uh, attribute the improved outcome um, to the definitions. The improved outcome is based on uh, better treatment and, frankly, better overall care. Putting that aside, um, the, the argument that, um, that these criteria have been prospectively tested I think simply doesn't hold water. Again, the entry criteria for everything you're talking about has been exactly the same for the treatment and the non-treatment group. There's no question that there has been a decrease in the relative mortality over time. Again, I would say that that's a function of improved, of improved management. Yeah, I, I, I certainly don't disagree with you that management has improved, Cliff. Um, and, and, but what I would say is that one of the reasons that management, and remember, trials, uh, trials are one thing, and actually I, I look at the surviving sepsis database as slightly different because these are not trialists, not uh, particularly sepsis experts. Um, but, but the I, entry I criteria for that database are fixed. Correct, um, and and my point my point is though that I I think we don't give better treatment unless we recognize the syndrome that we're talking about doing. And actually, there is there are papers which would uh, support that contention that when a specific diagnosis of sepsis is not is not made, the treatment um, is not as good. Um, so. So I think that the one enables the other. And, and yes, I can't argue that, that improved treatment wasn't the thing that in, in improved survival, but I believe improved recognition, and especially earlier recognition in the time course, um, is what improves or informs our improved treatment. I, again, it's very hard to disagree with that. But, again, I, I would make the following point. The entry criteria, again, let's go to the definition. The new definition says that sepsis is life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. Organ dysfunction is 
part and parcel. It's a requirement to put a label of severe sepsis on, um, on anything. And the entry criteria into the surviving sepsis database into all these trials is at the very least severe sepsis. And in some of the, data, in some of the trials, it's septic shock, which has a different set of clinical descriptors and a different, uh, and, and a different definition. Um, looking at the data that Chris Seymour worked through, starting with the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center database and expanding to include five other databases for a grand total of almost 6 million electronic health records looked at, 850,000 patients with suspected infection, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150,000 uh, or 70,000 uh, patients who um, went on to meet the outcome criteria that he used. SIRS was tested. Um, the SOFA score was tested. The load score was tested. A bunch of other scores were tested. And then 21 different individual variables. Every single variable that was considered uh, in that great big long table that accompanied the 2001 um, definitions paper. Every single one of those was tested to see which could help identify as early as possible, as early as possible, the patients who went on to have poor outcomes. Now, I think by, we can all agree that the difference between an infected patient and a septic patient in terms of outcome is a septic patient is more likely to have a bad outcome. Infected patients include everybody with a sore throat, um, everybody with a bad cold. Septic patients are really sick, and there's a big difference. The criteria were tested as early as possible in the data sets. That is, we identified suspected infection on the basis of cultures being sent and antibiotics being started. That said to us that somebody thought there was an infection going on. I can't imagine there's an earlier point where one would get, um, get concerned that sepsis was a possibility. And using a series of windows around that particular time point for each patient, as narrow as three hours and as wide as 24 hours, we tested all these different criteria. What we found was that SIRS did a reasonable job of identifying um, patients who, who did indeed go on to have poor outcomes. It also identified, as you'd expect, a whole lot of people with bad colds. And when you do the sort of analysis that I don't understand that, uh, that people like Chris Seymour and Manu Shankarhari are, are good at, um, what you talk about is pr predictive validity, the ability of a parameter to predict an outcome, the outcome being death or a prolonged ICU stay, but it was also validated with discharge, with discharge diagnoses. So if somebody was discharged uh, with a diagnosis on the chart of uh, severe sepsis, they were, that was part of the, the outcome criteria tested. Um, when it came down to it, the predictive validity for the QSOFA, the new thing that prompt that, uh, that Chris identified, and the change in the general SOFA score simply worked better than SERS did. Now, again, this represents, as far as I know, the only data-driven test of SERS by itself, absent the need to identify for entry criteria some kind of organ dysfunction. This was before any organ dysfunction had been uh, identified. And the poor outcome which most likely, when secondary to infection, 
represent sepsis, as best we can tell. Um, poor outcome was best identified by the changes in the clinical criteria that are contained in Chris Seymour's paper. So, Steve, so, yeah, that's a, that's a good explanation, Cliff, of, of what Chris did. And, by the way, this was a monumental task and done very well. Better him um, than me. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a different kind of research. You, you do just as good a research, just in a different vein. I'm, I'm well aware. Um, so, so the one thing that is troubling, there are a couple of things that, that are of interest in what was done. The first off is the, the very notion that the ideal thing to predict is mortality. Now, remember... Uh, as you well explained, that these are treated patients. Uh, these are patients uh, who had to have had a body fluid culture and antibiotics. And so we are looking at an outcome in, in patients who are treated um, of mortality when one might posit that what you would rather look at is an outcome of preventable mortality. Uh, in other words, in, in essence, what I'm saying is is if the patient's destined to die, regardless of treatment, that doesn't particularly help me as a physician up front or help me as a patient. If I'm that patient, oh, great, you identified me, but I'm destined to die regardless. So that, so that is one point. Uh, the next point, the, the one that baffled me actually um, in reading the paper is this, is, is that the component of sepsis that we have... Uh, enrolled patients on for all of these studies that we've been talking about historically um, is is what we have been calling severe sepsis, which actually does include organ dysfunction. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have compared a non-organ dysfunction for an outcome of mortality to and organ dysfunction criteria, and, and one would a priori have assumed that there would be a difference in those outcomes if one yeah, SOFA was defined by its ability to predict life-threatening uh, outcomes from organ dysfunction. So, so just to look at that a little bit, obviously the data are not in what, what's been presented in JAMA here, um, but my friend Bob Badgett in, in Wichita, at the KU School of Medicine in Wichita, actually went to uh, a Belomo study, the ANZIC study that was published last year, and looked at, okay, so what are the sensitivity and specificity for this same mortality outcome of the patients in, the, in uh, that study, the ANZIC study, who had two or more SERS criteria and an infection and organ dysfunction. Uh, and and actually, it turns out You're talking about the, the early goal-directed therapy trial? No, no, I'm sorry, not the, not the EGDT trial, but the, but the um, Australian-New Zealand Critical Care uh, Center, Research Center, study that showed that one out of eight people with okay, the organ dysfunction study. from infection, yeah, Kakonin study, um, did not uh, have SIRS. So basically, if you take their data, 109,000 patients with uh, infection and organ dysfunction, if you look at those that had SIRS in that data, 
you find a, a sensitivity for mortality of 92% and a specificity of 84% uh, compared to uh, what Chris found in these data sets for uh, just infection and SIRS, uh, a sensitivity of 64% and a specificity of 65 and for QSOFA, I don't have for all the various aspects of SOFA that could have been calculated, but for QSOFA, um, uh, what, what we see is a sensitivity of 55 and a specificity. And this is where this is potentially the advantage of the QSOFA is that the specificity for mortality is, is uh, greater. But again, I would say mortality or I should say mortality or ICU length of stay greater than or equal to three days, and, and we don't want to forget that. But so, so um, again, what we what we have compared a little bit is apples and oranges when we compare infection plus SIRS to infection plus SOFA points, um, and and what it looks like when we do this analysis here, which is data based again. Um, is that infection plus SIRS plus organ dysfunction is actually the most sensitive and equally as specific as infection plus QSOFA. Well, I, number one, I'm not sure that you can compare the two, to two data sets without actually doing the, anal doing the analysis uh, side by side. Yeah, I, and although I, and companies I did in that, that study is... Again, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't pretend to understand this stuff as well as the people who do. But what Derek Angus and Chris Seymour and those smart guys and, and Gordon Rubenfeld and tell me is that the whole notion of specificity and sensitivity is something that's a little misleading, that what you really care about is predictive validity, especially in something where you don't have a hard endpoint. Um, because the endpoint is soft, you can't really talk about sensitivity and specificity. Mm -hmm. and, and when you and, think predictive uh, ability, you're talking about area under the ROC curve. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. probably, okay. again, as I understand it. Um, <clears throat> so let's, let's take a big step back. Starting with sure. the, the Kokonan study, uh, I don't doubt for a second that SERS did a great job of identifying those really sick people. It's all the not-so-sick people that, it, that identifies um, who don't develop organ dysfunction and who don't need to be in the ICU and who, if they meet the criteria and somebody thinks they have, um, they're sick, might get a whole bunch of antibiotics and a whole bunch of fluid that they don't necessarily need. But I don't doubt for a second that that analysis is exactly, exactly as, as, uh, as you say. Um, on the other hand, there is also the study done by Chirpak et al. at uh, Kyle's institution at the University of Chicago. Yep. Um, which basically says if you look at patients on the floor across the board, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of half of them will meet SERS criteria at some point during their hospitalization. The great majority of them are not critically ill. And the conclusion on that paper was that the SERS criteria are not useful for identifying really sick patients. They're not a good enough discriminator. You raised and, the point and that's that... that's basically what, you, what Chris has shown. Too, yeah. I, I would agree exactly. that SIRS, SIRS, in the absence of any other information, is not a good predictor of anything. Okay, SIRS plus infection. SIRS plus infection. Uh, SIRS plus a, a yes. SIRS plus a demonstrated or um, 
uh, demonstrated suspected. or highly suspected uh, infection yes. has a different okay. carries a different meaning from just okay. Well, again, Chris's analysis again again Chris's analysis would say that Q sofa and sofa and I'll come back to sofa in a minute work better than SIRS in patients with suspected infection. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about wanting to identify patients as early as possible. Well, again, what you're saying is to meet criteria for severe sepsis, you have to demonstrate organ dysfunction. What Chris is saying is you don't have to demonstrate organ dysfunction. You can identify the patients who are going to do poorly before they get organ dysfunction or when they've got it in some very, very um, subtle occult form that we can't recognize yet. I'm not, I'm and that's a big advantage, and that goes exactly against what you're saying, which is that there will be a delay in diagnosis. There won't be a delay in diagnosis. There will actually be diagnosed earlier. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm not sure I'm following you on that, Cliff, because, first off, SOFA score itself is all organ dysfunctions, and secondly, QSOFA consists of uh, one feature, uh, respiratory rate, which might have been considered a SERS, um, a SERS criterion, and two mm-hmm. features, mental status change and, and uh, hypotension that actually are considered organ dysfunctions. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I'm not As opposed clear to on that point. Tachycardia that and, the temp- and an increase in temperature and an increase in white count, which yeah, also but, be considered organ dysfunction as well. Um, but, but, again, but, but the, the point I'm making of this, that I would make is this. The change that Chris is talking about in the SOFA score is two points. Okay, that's an incredibly small change, and yet it seems to be useful for identifying these patients and also useful for discriminating the patients who don't get into trouble. So the, the, the core of the argument then between the two definitions and that the two of you are opposing is keeping a very uh, broad sensitivity and uh, of making sure that no one's slipping through the cracks versus having a very high specificity with sepsis 3, it sounds like, to where you're going to be finding earlier the people that are going to progress to more severe disease. And the argument then would be, we're going to avoid an unnecessary trip to the ICU, for example, because sepsis 3 is more specific. But if I'm hearing right, Steve's arguing, but what we've got with sepsis 1 and slash 2 is such a broad sensitivity, and we don't, and time is organ here, we want to catch the possibility of everybody um, so that we're not missing an opportunity to jump on top of this. Is, is, that, a, is that a short summary of the, sort of the two key components of this it, debate? That's sort of isn't. It sort of isn't. I mean, it's right. the... I mean, well, the trust me, I knew I would over... I know I'd, I know I'd screw <laughs> it up, but I... You know. Yeah. <laughs> the sensitive... Uh, again, I, I hate using the terms sensitive... No, no I, I, and I recognize it. There, we don't have a gold the, standard to compare to, so we don't... Right, but again, right. The, the, the analysis that combines those two terms in the best way um, is this predictive validity. There are a couple of other points to make, too. Um, you would hope, for example, that if... QSOFA is better, and, and Gordon Rubenfeld would kill me for using that word. Um, <laughs> if, uh, if, if QSOFA is, is more effective, then it would identify the same patients that are identified by SIRS without identifying the patients who don't get sick that are identified by SIRS. And Chris did something um, to look at that, to, to see, you know, what would happen, how many patients would be added to the group that met outcome criteria if you took the patients identified by SIRS and applied QSOFA and vice versa. 
And it turned out that they both pretty much identified the same group of patients. There was, there was very close overlap. Uh, the other thing I, I, we have to remember is that death is not the endpoint that was used. There were a whole series of endpoints used. Death was one of them. The one that was used as sort of the, the to drive the major analysis was the combination of death and three or more days in the ICU. So it's catching a lot of pa- patients who recover because they get out of the ICU. Um, so it's, it's not just identifying patients who die. It's identifying patients who get sick and get better, too. And we also, Chris also used a different outcome, which was a discharge diagnosis of severe sepsis. If somebody's chart was coded as having severe sepsis, um, again, the predictive validity for a discharge diagnosis of severe sepsis was better for SOFA greater than or equal to 2 and QSOFA than it was for SERS. That's, um, uh, that's not how I read the paper. I, I read the paper as the two endpoints of mortality and ICU length of stay greater than three days. Right. That was the so final so endpoint that they chose to use. But they yeah. validated it by looking. It's in one of looking the appendices. The they validated it by looking at discharge diagnoses as well. They looked at a whole series of outcome variables. They chose those two because they thought it represented um, the thing that was most clinically relevant. Okay, sure, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, and so, so I would point out, I mean, we're not talking about, by the way, uh, particularly dramatic differences um, in, the, in the predictive validity of uh, QSOFA, uh, as in the area under the ROC curve is 0.76 for SERS by itself, which actually, quite frankly, surprises me that infection plus yeah, SERS would have that degree of predictive validity um, and an area under the curve of 0.81 for uh, QSOFA. But again, I will go back, I, I want to go back and hammer uh, the point that, that uh, Kyle brought up, which is from the standpoint of, I think of, well, from the standpoint of historical epidemiology and historical approach to patients, um, especially with a life-threatening illness that we have traditionally chosen as a screening test, the test with the highest sensitivity, uh, so that we don't miss or uh, allow some of these folks to fall through the cracks. Um, other words. And the sensitivity um, so in Chris's analysis of the two things were virtually equal. Um, they identified actually, the same patients. Actually, they're not. Uh, the sensitivity for, uh, for infection plus SERS is about 64% versus the uh, sensitivity for QSOFA of about 55%. Um, and and so, so, I mean, infection plus SERS, not as specific. This is the way I read it. Not as specific. Doesn't tell you who's going to die as well. Um, uh, or get really sick. More people up front. Right, or get, yeah, really, or sick. get really sick. Yeah, perhaps get really sick. Um, but we don't, we don't have, or at least I don't find in the data, or maybe there's just too much data thrown at me for me to find. There's something that we are forgetting here, I think, momentarily, and it, and it is this. And like I said, I can't find it in the data. But the, my question would be, what develops first, SERS or QSOFA? 
in a temporal relationship. And, and we're talking about these things as if they're static. We're also talking about them as if no one with Q-SOFA has SIRS and no one with SIRS has Q-SOFA. Which uh, what we're saying is the overlap is tremendous. The overlap is tremendous, um, is, is how I see it. But temporally, can one posit that, that the finding of SIRS, and this is sort of how you read the introduction to the Sepsis III paper, is that, uh, is that the finding of SIRS may be nonspecific and come earlier, and maybe it's just a normal thing in someone with infection. Um, and... Uh, uh, Q-SOFA represents a, somebody who's going to get sicker. Um, well, do I they happen at the same time, or do they not happen at the same time? I and I don't the only way we're going to answer that is to do a prospective study. Prospectively, I suspect that you would, uh, There's yes, no way you can do a retrospective study and actually get that information. You well, know, the vital it, signs are written down when the vital signs are written down. The first yeah, time they're yeah. written down, you're going to get a blood pressure and a respiratory rate and a temperature. You know, that's two out of three on both of them. Right. Oh. Um, uh, I would say two out of three or two out of four. Get it retrospectively, it'd be Chris Seymour. But <laughs> whether well, he tried, or not. Did he, he tried the narrowest okay. window he could get. You know, he just could not get a temporal sequence out of it. Yeah. There you again, go. these things are written down in times, and they're you know. Right. So, and, so and we just there's no way of knowing that. And well, and I think though that that we need to pay. Uh, some attention to that. Uh, one of the things, by the way, that, that I want to bring out about SIRS is one of the big arguments against SIRS is the fact that it is so nonspecific. Um, and, I, and I constantly have, a, in fact, for 20 years, I've looked at that argument that it's not specific. You can get it from climbing a flight of stairs. You can get it from uh, having a surgery. Uh, you can get it for, for a number of reasons, and everyone goes, well, if you can get it for all these reasons, it must not Malcolm Fisher used to say he got it whenever he was alone with his wife. So yes, I know. Heard <laughs> Jean Louis say the same thing. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed, I, I agree. Um, um, but the point is, uh, the fact that you can get it from a whole lot of different things. Um, uh, I've tried to make this point in, in a couple of different forums. It is this. So, yes, I do get SIRS when I climb a flight of stairs. It is a normal response to a physiological stress. Here I am stressing myself going up these flights of stairs. How do I make it go away? I stop climbing stairs, okay? Um, it may be a normal physiological response. In fact, I think we'd be fly in the face of history if we said it wasn't a normal physiological response. In the face of evolution. Infection, yes. Um, and so the face validity of SIRS as an indicator of a serious infection is, is there. And my point is, that, and I've always taught people this, is when you see SIRS, if you're bothered by it, ask yourself the question, is it being caused by this patient's infection, or is it being caused by something else? And that is what lends the specificity to it. Sometimes, I will grant you, and I know the perspective of most of the people on this panel is identifying sepsis in an ICU. Holy smokes, everybody's got SIRS in the ICU. Well, I, I Get, I get that perspective, um, that, that it's poor discriminative, discriminative ability in an ICU. But it's so also very different when someone presents. Yeah, so is QSOFA, actually. Good well, point. Um, and, uh, but, but it's an altogether different question when this is a person who is 
engaging in no physical activity is lying on a bed in front of you with a syndrome that says infection, and that's causing SIRS. That's where your specificity comes from. Well, you, you raise a lot of really good points, and probably the most important one of all is that none of these things should supersede clinical judgment. If you are looking at a patient and something in the back of your head or the base of your spine or the pit of your stomach or wherever it shows up says to you, something really bad is about to happen if I don't do something right now, you follow that. <laughs> Pay attention to it. Yeah. Exactly. And, exactly. You know, yeah. Frank Sarah always, always used to say that, you know, if you, if you put up... If you give somebody sugar and you have to hang up an insulin drip, the patient's trying to tell you something and you ought to listen to the patient. This is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Your, your conscious is trying to tell you something and you need to listen. Um, first of all, it's, it's, yes, we are all, we are all intensivists. We are all ICU-directed, although um, at least two of the members were um, primarily focused on infectious disease, and Tom Vanderpoel doesn't work in an ICU at all. He's a purely infectious disease guy, although ah, he's done a tremendous yeah. amount of work on that. A place where Q-Sofa works best is in the emergency room. And Chris did discriminate that out. He did separate out ICU from ward from emergency department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Q-Sofa's predictive validity is best and better than everything else in the emergency department, exactly the place you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, the other point I would make, and this goes to the biology of the thing, which is what obviously interests me the most, um, you're absolutely correct. The way that you, when you get SIRS from walking up the stairs, you stop walking up the stairs. When you get SIRS from an infection, you treat the infection. Exactly. I would posit that SIRS is a part of a normal response to infection. This is the regulated host response. It's what's supposed to happen. It's the way we've evolved to combat infection in an area, you know, in, in an eon when there were no antibiotics. So, again, you know, your SIRS isn't going to get better if you're infected until the infection is treated. Where things go amok and where sepsis makes things different is when even though you're treating the infection or trying to treat the infection, you still end up with organs that, um, that become dysfunctional. The problem here is that the host's response is inappropriate. It's dysregulated. <clears throat> That's the biology. There's no way to prove that one way or another. And that, frankly, to me, is where the focus needs to be um, from a research point of view, from now on in, how do we do a better job of identifying the infection as early as possible with molecular right. diagnostics or whatever? And how do we do a better job of getting earlier and earlier and earlier to the most occult possible things we can look at that say your lungs are about to become dysfunctional, your heart's about to become dysfunctional, your blood pressure's about to drop, mm-hmm. your kidneys are about to stop excreting, et cetera, et cetera. Those, to me, are... You know, those are the, the, the fascinating questions. What we're looking at here, SIRS, QSOFA, SOFA, all the rest of it, are fairly crude biomarkers. We're just doing the best that we can with, with, with the tools we've been given. And the real focus needs to be better tools. Yes, uh, Steve, no, no argument. Yes, Kyle, you have a best. Steve, time. part of your editorial also you discuss, I'm just, you know, I want to hear, have you expand on it and see what Cliff thinks as well is that, you know, the, the reason why we have a surviving sepsis campaign and the reason why the definitions, you know, have been around for as long before, you know, being reevaluated here for sepsis 3 has been the slow but steady um, adoption of these and the incorporation of the, the definitions of, you know, SERS and sepsis, severe sepsis, et cetera. 
that, that it's taken quite a process. Like you said, from a quality perspective, and your, I think your editorial addresses that, you know, in some, some hospitals, you know, they're only in the last couple of years has it really come around that they're starting to follow these new definitions, and there's sort of this, or, sorry, not new definitions, <laughs> new following of old okay. definitions. <laughs> following old, right. Let's call them clinical criteria, please. The thank you. You're right. Really you're good. Nope, yeah. you're right. I yeah, should. Let me correct my words. But the clinical criteria. I agree with. And so you bring up, you bring up a, a discussion that wait a minute. Now we're changing the clinical criteria. Right when we just got a lot of places online with the sepsis two. So I just wanted yeah. you to expand on that. Yeah. So so let's talk about that for a minute. So it, there are a couple of things. Although we've had the uh, the definitions of sepsis for about two and a half decades. Um, Really, they've only started to be known by the general public um, in the last perhaps decade, little over a decade. Uh, and let me expound on that. In 2004, uh, Mitchell Levy and others uh, published a paper where they actually asked people, including intensive care specialists, if they could recognize uh, recognize the criteria for diagnosing severe sepsis and something like only 17% of people recognized the criteria. And this was well over a decade after the criteria had been published. Um, so, so really, and, and that was one of the impetuses. I'm not sure what the, <laughs> that was <laughs> impetus for. Impetize uh, sounds like a disease. Impetize, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Um, like a pediatric disease, right? Um, the, the, um, um, an impetus for the surviving sepsis campaign was the fact that people don't even know what to look for. They're going by their gut, and mostly their gut was telling them, and I know this from broad experience, mostly their gut was telling them, you don't have sepsis until you're hypotensive. In fact, I remember the days in my ICU, I'd be quizzing residents and, and students, say, so how do you recognize sepsis? And of course, the first word out of their mouth for years and years was hypotension, and, and that leads to the long discussion. So, so really, we've only been pushing these these definitions out to a more general public, if you will, for about 10 years or, or 12 years. Um, and that, quite frankly, is not enough time. Um, beta blockers in acute MI. I mean, we still don't have adequate use of beta blockers post-MI, and this has been demonstrated over 20 years ago that it's beneficial and saves lives but we can't get the general public to do it. So, so I have a different perspective about this, having, having actually lived and worked in a rural hospital in western Kansas for a year um, and actually having worked with rural hospitals across my state for a decade or more, um, which is that there are still folks out there that think that sepsis has to be hypotensive. You have to need vasopressors. You have to have to be half dead before you actually have sepsis. Um, I've given talks before where a man stood up, very angered at me, and and yelled at me and said, "You are 
completely changing the definition of sepsis. <laughs> and, I, and I had to say, I, I'm sorry, you know, I, I didn't make up the, def, the definition. I didn't make up these criteria. Yes, exactly. And, and it's the only criteria that there ever actually have been. So, no, I'm not changing anything. But, but so you get my point. We are in, and we are in the midst, I feel, I can I can only feel, and my evidentiary basis is some of the studies that I I talked about before. But I feel that we are recognizing this thing earlier than we used to. I think that we part of why our treatments seem to be better, Cliff, is because we are seeing it much earlier in its time course than we used to. Um, my observation is this, this is, well, uh, this is a big can of worms. I probably shouldn't say it, but my observation, personal observation of, of uh, drotrocogen alpha, for example, is that the approach to sepsis over the decade when they first studied that drug and the end of the decade when they finally studied that drug had changed enormously in our academic centers so that so that uh, the the baseline mortality just wasn't there to see a mortality benefit. Um, I, I I feel like I'm going on and on, and I need to give you time to say something or Kyle time to to say something. But but well, yeah, my point I mean, is: look, you make you make a series of really good points. I mean, yeah. there there's absolutely no question. First of all, let's let's not confound recognizing something with treating something. The problem with beta blockers, the problem with not using low tidal volumes on a ventilator, uh, you know, these are practices, these are treatments that have not uh, achieved the, the adoption that they should. Um, and these are validated treatments. These are treatments where you can do a study, give half the patients one and not give it to the other, and show there's a difference, and that's been done. Indeed. The fact that that hasn't been adopted is... is um, is is a black mark on all our our ledgers, um, mm -hmm. and you know I, I again I the the argument you're making too about the slow adaptation is something that we hear um, consistently and very very frequently from from people who are practicing in uh, in low and middle income countries where yeah. their ability to to educate is is more limited. Um, never mind the resources they have available to them. So you're, you're absolutely correct. That said, I mean, you could make the argument that since people aren't using them anyway, let's give them something else and see if that works better. Um, I'm not sure that's a good argument, but you're a good argument. And as far as, you know, observational stuff, too, is, you know, people observed that the moon was made of green cheese until Neil Armstrong came back with some, some rocks. So, <laughs> yeah, so, again, you know, that, you know, we need data to confirm this. Yeah. The, yeah. the bottom line is that, that SIR still serves a very, very important function. And I think, again, you hit on it in talking about walking up the stairs or about treating an infection. SIRS tells you that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm just not convinced. I, I think the data do not support that it's telling you that what is wrong is necessarily sepsis, that it represents an early window into organ dysfunction, that it represents an early window into a dysregulated host response. We're in no way saying that, that it should be abandoned. 
um, and that was one of the things that I, I took issue with in your, your editorial. We're simply saying that it should be repurposed. When it's abnormal, it's still telling you something's wrong. Let's just call it what it is, which is infection or inflammation, um, and yeah. not attribute the biological process, processes that we think go along with sepsis to that particular set of constellation of abnormalities. And by the way, I would point out that this entire discussion, we keep saying sepsis, 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 and what we mean is severe right. sepsis. So that, yeah, uh, right. I hope that gets across the point that one of those words is redundant. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, fair enough. Um, uh, uh, one of the things, I don't know, I, uh, Kyle, how much time do we have? Um, well, I mean, we've, we've been talking for a little bit, so it's probably worth wrapping up here, but I don't want to have a kind of sort of conversation that's, Obviously, that's carrying on. On one level, clearly, this to make go all night. Right, exactly. Right, of course. So why, don't we, yeah, why don't we work towards some final points? Right, why don't we work towards some final points? Yeah, and by the way, uh, you know, one of the final points that I want to make is, is Cliff and I, I think, are looking at this from a couple of different vantage points, but it is clear to me that what we what we are both interested in, what all the authors of the sepsis-3 paper are interested in, and what I'm interested in is reducing mortality from this deadly right. condition. There, There is no question that we are fighting the same war, uh, perhaps from different flanks. And, and I want to be um, 100% clear on that point. Absolutely. Um, uh, I, th I think that... Um, um, well, Cliff and I can do this another time. Uh, they, I do take a little bit of issue with this word dysregulated. Uh, and I'll tell you why I do. is because I have been a, a student, probably a casual student, but a student nonetheless of, of complexity science. Um, mm -hmm. and, and what you learn from the science of complexity is that even simple sets of behavioral instructions <laughs> for a system can develop a complex, seemingly chaotic behavior. You know, it looks all the world like chaos. And when Cliss says this is dysregulated and it's bad, it's clearly detrimental to the host, but I doubt that it's actually dysregulated. It's probably everything, every cell in there is following the instructions that it gets from its genes, from its history, from its epigenetics from the type of infecting agent this is here, and carrying this out and iterating these instructions over and over. Um, so, so and, and I would posit that SIRS that emanates from an infection is likely to be an early phase of that, of what we're looking at. These are cells carrying out their instructions, doing what they're supposed to do, and and it may be, you know, from a complexity standpoint, it may be that we just have to look sheerly probabilistically if we can figure out what the actual keys are. And QSOFA may be one of the cues for us. Um, SIRS may be one of the cues for us. Um, I, I think that it's it is a deeper question, as Cliff has said. This is a question that we don't have an answer to. <laughs> but, but I'm not sure that I believe we're dysregulated. We're probably regulated just the way nature says to regulate it. It just happens to be to our detriment in a lot of cases. First of all, we'd have to go to, uh, if, if we're going to do the, the complexity analysis on this, we need to talk 
the guys at the Livermore Laboratory and letting us use their computer because absolutely you ain't going to do this uh, on a Macintosh. You know, you're not, <laughs> not, Mac Pro. Um, not with this system. No, we're not. No. I, I, this regulates a funny word. Um, it can be applied in a lot of different ways, and I absolutely 100% agree with you. And this is getting into the, the basic biology that I find so fascinating, and that's basically what I spend my time studying. Um, when we look at the animal models, what I would say the hallmark of a dysregulated response is, is when the behavior of an individual cell may be adaptive for that cell, but it's maladaptive for the organism as a whole. So yeah. a liver cell may do everything it can to stay alive, put all its energy into making sure that membrane potentials are maintained and that proteins are sensitized that are required for cell membranes and whatnot. Um, what it's not doing is clearing toxins, <laughs> producing clotting factors, mm -hmm. and the things that are required to, to you know, keep the organism alive. Mm -hmm. That, to me, that's when I say dysregulated, and I'm not yeah. speaking for anybody but myself, that's what I mean is when the program that you're talking about for individual cells reverts to, you know, to the point where we were unicellular, unicellular mm. animals or whatever, um, and that where cool the preservation of an individual cell was the single most important thing. And you actually see yeah. evidence of that. I mean, cardiomyocytes don't die, but they won't contract. And epithelial <laughs> cells the same way, and hepatocytes mm -hmm. don't do what they're supposed to do, and pulmonary cells don't exchange gas. Um, yeah. Pulmonary cells die, but... Um, you know, you don't get reabsorption in pulmonary and tubular epithelial cells in the kidneys. Right. Muscle cells right. won't contract, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But when you go and you actually look in patients who recover, the actual cellular damage that you can demonstrate morphologically is, is quite small. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Good point. So, so, so guys, let's, make, let's get a final minute or two, minute quick statement to summarize um, your positions and... and and let's wrap it up for the just the, for both of your times and then the sake of our listeners. Sure. Give a final summary statement. How about that? Sure. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. first. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> you, Pierre. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so my summary statement basically is this, that, uh, and Kyle, you said it, so I'm going to say it like we might say it in Kansas, it ain't broke. <laughs> Let's let's not try and fix it in midstream. Let's, in fact, what I would like to see us do is push the current definitions of sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock until we can't get the mortality down any further, till every hospital in my state and yours is recognizing early, treating aggressively, and has reduced their mortality to the point it can be reduced. And then we've got some people where I think we need some people, some patients, where I think we need to have a clearer understanding because then we've got, we have reached the, the end of our human potential at that point to effect change in the outcome of sepsis. And that's, that's the, the point of the spear or the, <coughs> the time at which we need to come up with a different way of looking at things. Okay, and I would say that, you know, I absolutely agree with the goal. Let's push the treatment and the management as far as they're capable of taking us. Um, let's try to get something that's uniform so that we're all talking about the same thing because we seem to have 
come at odds with each other. But we also need to do the best job we can of recognizing what it is we're going after. And I would make the argument that, uh, that QSOFA and a minor change in the, in, the, in the SOFA score, which, by the way, needs to be revised desperately, um, will do a better job of that on a data-driven basis. And the single most important thing of all is that we collect the data and we actually yeah. find out prospectively, moving forward, what really works. Yeah, right. on that, that's what our you patients and I agree need. wholeheartedly. I can say. All right. Well, this this was exactly what we were hoping for. A, a great debate, obviously, over a obviously a, a uh, challenging topic that, uh, without a doubt, is. Uh, Evolving, but at the same time, obviously, has um, a lot of different opinions. And, and, and as we talked about from the beginning, I mean, clinical criteria, lack of a gold standard, this is what's always going to make this, this whole process interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and I think and, we got to be thinking about the psychiatrists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, terrific. I, I can't thank you both enough for your time. I really appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Thanks uh, to both of you. This was fun. Both of you. I really enjoyed this a lot. This was and a lot of fun. appreciate it.